all love stories. The great books and movies that we love all entail a plot, characters, a problem, some sort of pain, and a hero to make things right. That said, however, the stories that we believe have shaped and continue shaping us into the men and women that we are today. According to the way of Jesus, there are really only two options for those of us created in his image. On one hand, we believe the story of the kingdom of God, or we believe some cultural narrative that will always lead to idolatry. Would we then be a people who follow the way of Jesus as we live into the true story of God? The best means of living out our part in the story of the kingdom of God is to live our lives as he would if he were with us today. And we do so together. If it's true that the culture we live in forms us into a particular type of person, conformed to the pattern of this world, as Paul puts it, then the church's mission is to be counterformational to the world around us. Community groups, then, are much more than a social club or a box to be checked. They are the missional context in which we live, work, play, and worship with brothers and sisters as we share the good news of Christ's life, death, resurrection, and eventual return to claim His bride. In this episode, we discuss the Western cultural moment we live in today and how community groups are the primary context for us to live into a counterformational community. This is episode four of season one on the Grace Auburn Leadership Podcast. We really hope you enjoy it. All right, I am back here again with Hoffman. We are continuing on in our conversation about authentic gospel community working itself out and really the lifeblood of that for us in community groups, what it looks like for us to belong to one another. In episode one, we started the conversation of why community groups. And the answer is because God has always been in community. He is a triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a divine community uh, whose very nature, the essence of who he is, is Love, And so that then led us into God's triune nature being on mission to rescue a broken and falling world. And he accomplishes that mission through a people who belong mm-hmm. to him and to one another, starting with Adam and Eve, seeing all of the brokenness that came from that. God choosing a family that was not yet a family, but a promise to make a family and Abram mm-hmm. and Sarai, turning them to God's people, beginning a family with Abraham and Sarah, and eventually that giving way to not just a family, an immediate family of, of people, but an entire nation as a family. And then Jesus coming onto the scene to be the final fulfillment of all of the promises of God from the very beginning, sending his, knowing that he would send his son into time and space at a particular time, fulfill all of the promises, all of the law, all of the prophets, and to show people that there is a way that is better mm. than the way of this world. And eventually the birth of the church comes in Acts. And then in episode three, we talked about to be the missional people is to become a certain kind of people. Mm-hmm. To be a people on mission is to be a certain kind of people, a relational people whose nature is love because our God's nature mm-hmm. is love. And it is to become over time, ideally, it will become over time our essential quality. We would be uh, so enamored, so, enca- so, so enraptured by who God is that we would become just as others-centered Mm-hmm. as he is, mm-hmm. outward moving, selflessly loving, Christ 
like love in and through the people of God. And God would then accomplish his mission to the world through that kind kind of people. people. Mm -hmm. And community groups are simply our context. They are the means by which we foster and encourage that kind of love so that we become the kind of people that show God to the world as he carries out his mission. So that brings us to today, to episode four of season one of Why Community Groups. And we could talk for hours and hours and hours about the why. Our hope is to maybe land the why today here in this episode. That's Uh, our hope. That's our hope. We'll see. (laughs) You know, no promises. Yeah. So um, thank you, Lee, for that intro. So Why Community Groups, the, the, the fourth answer we're trying to say here is that because we need to be counterformed and counterformation happens best in the context of rich community but so what do i mean by counterformation and so one place to go for that is romans 12 verses 1 and 2 and i'll just read that for us i appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of god to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to god which is your spiritual worship do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so this word, he says, don't be conformed to the world and this pattern of life in the world. Be transformed by renewing your mind. And the Greek word is metamorpho, which is the word by which we get the word metamorphosis. Mm. And so it's this transformation of your being and character and nature and how it expresses itself in life. He calls us to be transformed by renewing our mind according to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Another key text on this is 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, where John says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Mm. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Mm. And so what we have here are two ways, two mindsets, two kingdoms, two powers at work Mm. exerting their forces upon us to uh, conform us into their mold. So one is the way, the mindset, the kingdom of Jesus, who by the power of the Spirit, working through the Word of God and through His people, conform us to a Christ-like mold, Mm. which is fulfilling up the image of God, which is what it means to be human, which is to be an other-centered, outward-moving people who love like God loves. Mm. That's who we are made to be. And so God is about the purpose of transforming us, conforming us to the image of Christ. To be truly fully human right and then the other way mindset and kingdom is the kingdom of satan or evil who is working by the power of lies to weave this web of deceit into the world which which plays on and takes advantage of our our own human sinfulness and weaknesses and this is what john is referring to when he calls it the world it's the world in rebellion against god it's the world under the sway of Satan. Yeah. So in some places in the Bible, you see God so loved the world. Mm. And then in this place, you see, which is also written by the Apostle John, here it's like the world is used in a different sense. Sure. So in this sense, it is the world in rebellion against God under the sway of Satan. Yeah. And he's saying that world is exerting a force on mm. us to conform us to a mold yeah. that fits the way of Satan, which is in uh, opposition to the way of God. Yeah, I think uh, as we get into this idea of being a missional people and the 
community groups being the context by which we learn to become that kind of person, I think it's really important to just pause and recognize, as John Mark Comer in Portland, Oregon would say, that the cities that we live in, the cultures that we live in, are formation machines. Yes. Like they are, because they live, they're a part of the world, they're a part of the design of the enemy, not all things in culture being inherently evil, but being used by the enemy to form us into a particular type of person. Yes. They are yes. doing that. Yeah. So we, we, the task of Christians and Christian leaders especially is to parse out what is, what is being driven along by the force of idolatry, the mm. force of Satan, and, and how is that in opposition to God and his purpose in the world? Mm. So God, he is in the business of rescuing, rescuing people out of the kingdom of darkness, out of Satan's domain, mm. and bringing them into the domain of Jesus and under the rule, the loving rule of Jesus. But here's the catch. When when upon rescue and you get transferred into the kingdom of God under the grace and mercy and love and rule of Jesus, you don't automatically begin to live according to the ways of that new kingdom. It's yeah. kind of like if you were to immigrate to a foreign country, right. you bring with you a lifetime of, of being patterned according to the, the customs, the values, the ways of thinking and, and living. You bring that with you. Yeah. So just because you're... Um, your passport or your nationality changes. Your character, uh, their character chain lags lags behind the um, official. You've been now. You're now an American citizen or a citizen of, a, of another country. Yeah, for you to move from America to let's say France, there is so much America hardwired in you for sure that you just don't even know. Yeah, and well, even, even for us, there's so much south. If we are, if you're from, if you grew up in Alabama, you're going to carry it with you. You're going to carry it with you. It's hardwired into who you are. That's right. So it's like, it's like that, um, transfer from one kingdom into another kingdom. Mm. The character formation lags behind the um, pronouncement that now you belong to this kingdom and not that kingdom. Yeah. Or another way to uh, describe it is like, like if um, you uh, were to adopt a child, I know many in our church family have adopted children, especially if they're older children and they're, they're brought up uh, living in perhaps an orphanage or a, a situation that's not great, and they, they learn to survive mm. in that context. Yeah. And they have to. But then when they're brought into a loving family with a mommy and a daddy who care for them and are present in their lives and are teaching them, like they're not automatically going to just absorb the ways of their new family. They have a lot of their old way um, still with them. And so that's part of the difficulty that goes into adoption is, especially of older children, is this, this relearning that the child has to do and the parent has to patiently encourage so that now they know you, you have a mommy. You have a daddy. Before you didn't, now you do. Yeah, like to, to be abundantly clear, when we talk about going from one kingdom into the other, we're not talking about the learning a particular way of life as a means of entrance into. Like adoption, That's is, right. yeah. adoption is such a good picture of like you did nothing to deserve That's right. going from this place where things were broken hard and you didn't have a future that was known to now your last name is this. That's right. You've been made. This is now true of you. Now, because of an act of grace and mercy, because and of an, yeah, yeah, now it, yeah. your your transformation is about learning to act like that were true. Yeah, be who you are. Yeah, you. It's like, um, yeah. So God does that of His own 
loving initiative, mm. he, he rescues us and he brings us, he liberates us out of Satan's domain, brings us into him. And then Christi the life of the Christian becomes a, a lifelong process of learning now to live according to the rules and laws and character and manner of the king. Yeah, so Paul's language of metamorphosis going from the kingdom of death to the kingdom of life, it's a massive transformation. And so when we talk about counterformation. That's not a word we use. That's not a word that like, you know, you find people talking about on campus a lot or, or, or you know, in your workplace a lot. So let's dig into what we mean, yep. you know, at this idea of metamorphosis or counterformation. Yeah. So, so um, this is, this is what we're talking about is that we have, we've already been formed by former ways of thinking, feeling, and doing. And now Jesus, by his spirit, and what I'm going to try to argue today is that this happens best when it's in the context of rich Christian community. Mm -hmm. He's about the business of counterforming us. So here, here's the main point of this podcast. If you don't hear anything else, hear this, is that Jesus, by the Spirit, he does this through Christian community as together we seek to order our lives under his word or under his law of yes. love. Yes. So that, that happens best when we are in rich community with one another. So yes, the, the personal spiritual disciplines are essential, you know, reading your Bible and meditation and prayer, and th those are, there's lots of things that go into this, mm. but the Christian, Christian community is the soil in which the seed of these spiritual practices can grow up and mature and then bear fruit. If the main fruit of the Spirit is love, well, then you have to be in context. There's got to so, be. There's okay. got to be another person there for you to even do that. Yeah, right? lo loving myself <laughs> is not exactly what Jesus right. is talking about. That's right. Okay. So, so um, now you may say, well, I've been a Christian. Look, I've been a Christian for a long time. I left the kingdom of, dark, of darkness maybe decades ago. Uh, or, or perhaps you were brought up uh, as a child in a really wonderful uh, Christian home that nurtured you in the ways of uh, the kingdom of God from birth. And, you know, perhaps you can't even remember a time when you didn't know God mm. or uh, endeavor to pattern your life according to his ways. And and that's wonderful. And that is the best way. That's what I pray and I hope for my, my own children. Yeah, absolutely. They won't remember a day when they didn't know God. Yes. However, even still, my children and yours and, and all of us, no matter how long you've been following Christ, we are still set within a context of the world, yeah, and in, in the uh, the way John was using it in chapter two of his letter, the world under the sway of Satan. Yeah. We still live in that idolatrous context, and it, it exerts a force upon us mm. that we must learn to to recognize how it is forming us in terms of what it wants us to uh, love and the way it wants us to think and behave in this world. Yeah. And we have to, we can't be oblivious to the, the force of the world that's exerted upon us all around. So I want to try to highlight that for us today. So I want to try to demonstrate three things for the rest of our, our time. Number one, that we, we are being formed uh, by an idolatrous cultural story. Mm. And number two, that we need to be counterformed by God's story. And then number three, as we've already mentioned, authentic gospel community is the best context for that counter. Formation. I love it. So that's that's where we're going to try to go today. All right, let's do it. Um, okay, so number one, we are be, we are being formed by an idolatrous cultural study, a story, and this is the way. I just want to say this is the way it has always been um, since Adam and Eve fell. The people of God have been rescued out of an idolatrous culture and brought into this new kingdom, and God is forming them by His law. But it's always in the context of idolatry around them. So if you take uh, Israel or even Abraham, you know, he came out of the land of Ur. Mm -hmm. Ur was a land of uh, idol worshipers. Mm -hmm. 
and God is reforming them to trust in him to take care of his needs. Or uh, Israel being saved out of Egypt. Yeah. Um, you know, it was said that Moses could get the people out of Egypt, but he couldn't get Egypt out of them. Right. <laughs> you ever heard that? Yes. And so, you know, they ca- it's they ca- better that we were slaves. Yeah, that's yeah, right. They, I want to go back. They carried a lot of Egypt with them yeah. on their way to the promised land, yeah. which in for that generation prevented them even from entering the promised land. Or then later, Egypt, uh, Israel in the in the land of Canaan, they're still surrounded and influenced and, and tempted by their Canaanite yes. neighbors, or even if they go into exile in Babylon much later, and here you have the exilic community in the context of big, big bad Babylon with all of its idolatry, Daniel and his friends, and they're struggling to how do we remain faithful to God in an idolatrous context. Yeah. Or even post-exile, they come back, they're still ruled by the other um, ancient Near Eastern powers. So Israel's response to the Old Testament is this, is this um, response of faithfulness by some at some times yeah. uh, and compromised by many most of the time. Yeah, that's right. That, that's a way of kind of summarizing their story. Well, if you, you, know, you fast forward to the time of Jesus and it's not much has changed. The people of Israel are still there. They're waiting for God to do something, but they are in the context of the Greco-Roman world with its, all of its attendant idolatries. Right. And so they're struggling to, how do, how do we respond in this environment? And in the first century, there's some that respond like, well, we need to just collaborate yeah. with the powers that be, the right. Sadducees. That's right. the direction they took. And then you had the Pharisees to say, which is, that's the ones we probably know most about if you've been in the church for a while. And they were like, no, we need to um, double down on faithfulness to God and separation from uh, other peoples in order to be pure to God that, so that he might come and deliver us. Right. Then you had the zealots like, no, let's just kill them all. You know, this yeah. underground resistance movement. Which uh, part, of, part of you wants to love the zealots, and you're like, man, God has never done things that way. Yeah, How, so, so, all right. yeah so they, they carried around swords, you know, in their, in they, their clothes. And, they were known or, as dagger men. They'd hide daggers in their cloaks, like literally ready to murder someone at any moment. Yeah. yeah. So you have the zealots' response to that situation, and then you have the Essenes who were like, you know what? All of you are wrong. This, is, this culture is just too far gone. We're going out into the desert. Yeah, we're out. And they go out to the, uh, the Dead Sea area and just live out there as, you know, this hermit-type community. Um, so that was their response. But they're always, how do we be faithful to God in the midst of the idolatry around us? And yeah. they had different responses. Right. Jesus comes along and said, all of you are wrong. <laughs> you know, there's <laughs> yeah. another way entirely. Yeah. Um, and so he calls the 12 together and he shows them that, you know, uh, yeah, you had to pay taxes to give Caesar what is due, but give to God what is his due. Yeah. And he, he cuts through the, the, the tension in a way that is counterintuitive often, but it's, it's neither of these responses. It's something different altogether. Be in the world, but not out of the world. He prays for them in John 17, Father, do not take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil one. Yeah. And therein lies the tension. Uh, later on in the early church, it, the, this same pattern continue. They're scattered. They're under the Roman Empire. They're persecuted. How do we live in this context? Mm. Um, First Peter, what we're going through as a church now, Peter's writing to this to this context. Christians are being persecuted. It's in the time of Nero. They're under threat. But yet he calls these Gentile believers, you are uh, God's chosen race, mm. a royal priesthood, a holy nation called to belong to him and declare his excellencies. In, in the world. So in, if, you, if you look carefully in First Peter, you'll see um, he's calling them to uh, 
don't conform, for example, in chapter 114, don't conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Mm-hmm. Um, you've been redeemed from the empty way of life yeah. handed down to you from your ancestors. God has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Mm. And, and he's like, you spent enough time doing what the pagans do. Yeah. And now he calls them to a new identity. You've yeah. been given a new identity, a new calling, a new purpose in, in this world. Yeah. And so... Um, uh, it, it, Peter's letter gives them hope and instruction for living in what Leslie Newbegin calls the painful tension between the church and the world. Mm. Um, they they were formed by the world. They need to be counterformed for the sake of the world. And Newbegin says this tension is a painful one. Yeah, it should not surprise us that from the beginning of God's story and bringing a people into existence and that people then giving birth to the Messiah and the church, that God has always left us right where we were when he found us Mm -hmm. for the purpose of saying, hey, your life in this moment is both a vapor and it matters. And Peter's instructions to the church are beautiful in a sense that says, if you will live like this is true. Mm -hmm. You will live such good lives among the pagans. From I just told them, you just came out of all that. Right. If you live this way, this counter-cultural way, then they will see the way you live, they will see the way you love, and they will glorify God. They will glorify me on the day he visits us. That's a beautiful both promise and an incredibly high calling. Like We're not getting out of the responsibility of living our life in a particular way, not however we want to, not individualistically, not, not, mm-hmm. not you know, according to what's comfortable or convenient for me, but in a specific way as a people together, a royal priesthood, a chosen race, like these, as Matt said in, on Sunday's sermon and our study, our, our sermon series on First Peter, which is awesome and is over on our Grace Auburn Church podcast. You should absolutely go and listen to those if you've not yet started listening to or worshiping with us on Sunday mornings, journeying through First and Second Peter this summer in 2022, God is doing something collectively with a people. That's right. And it's a beautiful picture. Yeah, it's a corporate identity that we're together. And the early church, um, they did not do this perfectly, uh, obviously. Mm. Yet they did, uh, by and large, a really good job. And it took, it, I mean, Christianity began to take root throughout the Roman Empire. Um, and uh, even the, it, it, you know, it grew to a point where... Um, even the, the, the people in power, they begin to notice that, man, this, these Christians are a social force, whereas the people uh, in the Greco-Roman world, they would do things like if they didn't have a boy, they would leave the girl out on a, a baby out on the street. And Christians were like, we can't do that. Life is precious. So they would adopt these children in. Mm. Or when plagues hit the empire, uh, the, the people, the, the, the people, the pagan religious, they would, they would flee the cities, whereas the Christians would... Um, they would care for the sick and the dying. Mm-hmm. And, and these, again, people shaped by the love of Jesus, um, and doing that together, they form these uh, networks of care, not only for their own, but for their neighbors around them that were pagans. Um, it, it made this uh, really big impact, and the, the surrounding culture couldn't help but take notice. That's right. Um, so the, the way it, it, this is the way it's always been. Mm. The people of God set within the context of idolatrous cultures. And I want to spend some time to demonstrate that this is the way it is now. And sometimes I think that we are are not as well aware 
of the idolatries in the culture around us. Well, I think we believe the lie that America is a Christian nation. Well, like, we're gonna, yeah, we're gonna y- get to that. You know, yeah. so, so I just, I just want to say, like, from the outset, from the we we find ourselves in just as dark, broken, culturally idolatrous time and place as the people of God have always ever been. That's right. Nothing's changed. Yeah, that's right. All right. All right. So, so um, I, I mentioned Newbegin in the last episode that he lived for 40 years in South India, focused on reaching Hindus. And upon following Jesus, a person from a Hindu background, and he, he was in a more rural context in that time period, um, they immediately begin to feel this painful tension. Mm. Their lives have been shaped by the Hindu um, religious practice. I mean, every part of their life is uh, was was shaped by Hinduism, and now they become a follower of Jesus, and they they feel the tension immediately. Sure. And um, they even begin to ask, like a farmer would ask, "Well, how now that I'm a Christian, how am I to plant my millet?" Yeah. And like. <laughs> <laughs> like that question would never. If you're a farmer, like that question probably wouldn't have entered your mind upon right. following. Je- Why? Well, how can I plant my corn now? Sure. Now that I'm a Christian, like that just it was right. like, what are you talking about? But for them, the planting of their crops, there's so much um, Hindu ritual that's associated with those right. um, yearly agricultural cycle that they really had to wrestle with that. God, how do I plant my millet now that I'm I'm following you? Mm. And so. Um, and I can relate the, to this from my time in, in China and Tibet, and even with Muslims and Hindus here in Auburn. Before, even before they uh, become a Christian, they can already begin to anticipate the, the painful tension that they will face. They, they mm. feel it as a, an acute problem created by a faith commitment to Jesus. Um, and so, you know, I would have Chinese friends that would be like, well, how can I be a... Um, how can I continue in my studies knowing that I'm going to be invited into the Communist Party? Right. The painful tension. Yeah. Or even if they're a graduate out of college and um, working in sales. Well, so much of the sales process in that uh, context is, um, well, less than God-honoring, yeah. let's just say. Right. And so how, how can I do my job yeah. when my job requires me to do things that now I'm reading in the Bible are things I can't do any yeah. longer. So immediately they feel the painful tension because they're not living in a culture that's as influenced by a Christian worldview sure. as is ours. So Newbegin, 40 years there, he spent the last 20-plus years of his life back in England helping Christians in the West to wake up to the fact that there is a tension between Western culture and its underlying meta narrative and the gospel. Mm. So he used all of his missionary expertise and his, his missiology training to explore the question, what would be entailed in a missionary encounter with Western culture? Mm. So I want to highlight just two of his insights for us. He has many, but first he had to demonstrate that there is an encounter. Right. Um, there is a tension and that most Christians are not aware of it. Yeah. They don't feel the painful tension, or at least not as acutely as his experience with Hindus coming to Christ in sure. India. So um, and Hendrik Kramer was a, another missiologist theologian in the same time period, 20th century, and he argued that the, the more oblivious of the tension that the church is, the more well-established and at home in this world it feels, the more it is in deadly danger of being the salt that has lost its savor. Mm. That's a pretty... Um, That's a strong, <laughs> strong indictment. Yeah, the more, the less you feel the tension, the more danger you are in of 
actually being your life being shaped by idolatry. And it's something it's so it's so insidious in the West because in the West, whether it be in New Begins Day in England or ours in the 21st century America, is that well you can do whatever you want to do, mm-hmm. like, right? Like you like if if that's what you believe, like the tension for you, it doesn't cut culturally as obviously as it would for a Hindu or as it would for a Chinese believer in communist China. For us, it's like, well, we can just add it into the pluralism of our day That's right. and say, well, I can, I, can, I can continue to live my life this way and follow Jesus. That's right. And, and, and there's, there's, there's historical reasons for that. It's not, it's not simplistic. But what, what Newbegin and others uh, have sought to do is to expose the religious core Mm. Of of our culture, so it, it's it's referred to today. We live in a, a secular modern age. I mean, we're used to that kind of way of talking about mm. our, our context, and it, it betrays a, a misunderstanding that New Beginning and others were trying to expose. So here it goes like the the view goes like this: that um, in the Middle Ages it was a it was a religious society. Mm. And um, but now we've now we live in a secular society in the in the modern period. That before it was a life that depended on faith and you know principles found in the Bible. Right. Uh, but now we rely on reason. Yeah. And um, and we humans um, are our religion has been now really seen as just a, a pri- private experience and sure. relegated to the private sphere. Yeah. But the real stuff of life happens in the public sphere, which is dominated by and ruled by human reason. Yeah. And so he, what he argued was that this is a religious statement. This is a statement of faith mm. that the culture is making. Uh, and because either, the, from a biblical standpoint, humans can either um, center their lives on God or they can center their lives on something other than God, their whole of life. Mm. The way they do family, the way they do work, the way they relate to their neighbors, the way they do everything, you can either center that on God or something else. Mm. And if you center it on anything other than God, it's idolatry. Yeah. And so Newbegin writes to expose the idolatry that's latent in our culture. And then this, that was the first thing he, he attempted to do. And secondly, he had to show that our worldview and our lives by, are, are shaped by this idolatrous story. Mm. The, he says this, and I'm quoting from him, the way that we understand human life depends on what conception we have of the human story. What is the real story of which my life is a part? Mm. Some story is shaping our view of reality and is orienting us towards an ultimate purpose. It's nurturing our heart's affections. It's clamoring for our allegiance and it's motivating specific behaviors. Mm. So it's critical for us today to understand what story is really shaping us. Mm. Um, and it's difficult to see. Uh, it's easier to see when you go to another another culture. Yeah. It's easier to spot their idolatries and where the story of their culture is headed. Sure. It's harder to see when you're trying to analyze your own culture. Yeah, it's yeah. like asking the fish, how's the water? <laughs> Yeah, you know, they're like, what's water? They've what? never known anything other. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> what are you... So <laughs> right. it's, it's, it's difficult to see. Yeah. And so it takes, um, it takes patience and it takes attentiveness to God's story and then paying attention to the culture and where are those things rivaling one another. And it takes a community to be able to do that. Um, James K. Smith is, is somebody who's written on this a good bit. And he, he, he poses several good questions, but 
to help us in this area. And one of them is, what is your vision of the good life? Mm. Or what is the culture's vision of the good life? Sure. Because that is orienting us towards some end that you're calling us to move, that is calling us to move towards. Yeah. And he asks another question, what is it that you want? Yeah. What you want and what, what vision you have of the good life is, is creating a story, a narrative. Yeah. And then it's going to present, well, what's keeping me from getting there? Yeah. And that's the barrier. That's the problem that has to be solved. And then it's, it's pointing you towards some savior to solve that problem. Maybe that's you or something else right. so that you might get the good life that you want. Yeah. And culture, it, it, um, it casts a vision mm. for the good life. So then we have to ask us the ask the question: What vision of the good life is our culture casting for us? Yeah, who's and it? how much have I bought into it? Yeah, and who's at the center of it? Yeah, who's it about? Who gets the glory? Who's the hero? All of those things. I, I, w- I would say, if God has a way, a means by which we are to live our life, then largely the narrative that I've been taught my entire life is that I am the center of that. That, that, that things revolve around me, and then when I have kids, it revolves around them, and it revolves around travel this, this sport, this, that. I mean, think about all the things that take away from involvement in the life of, let's just say, the church, and how much of our life is oriented around self, self-fulfillment, self-enhancement, self-aggrandizement, self-actualization, all the things the, the narrative starts to become a little bit more clear when you think about, man, who's really at the center of this story? Who, who's the main character? Who's the main character? Right, that's right. right. All the things. Yeah. Like we are narration. Like we are, we are by design, we are narration beings. That's a quote. Well, one, one, um, a lot of people have written on this. One, one of my friends wrote a book called A Novel Approach, but um, Mike Matthews, he says we are homo narrans. <laughs> that's his <laughs> co- phrase. I don't know if that's going to catch on, that phrase, but anyway, that was no, the right. phrase he coined, that we are narrative-shaped people. And so, you know, narratives have a beginning, middle, and an end, yep. character setting, and a plot. And so the plot uh, is moving towards some end. And so what... James Smith is getting at is what's the end? Mm. What's pulling you forward? And so I ask that in evangelism or discipleship, a lot of times I'll ask, hey, what's your vision of a good life? Like if I drew a circle on this page yep. and you put in that circle all the things that would fill up your definition of like, ah, oh, mm. life is good. Mm-hmm. What, what it, what's in there? What's yeah. in the circle? And uh, if most of us are honest, there's a lot of things that are not in and of themselves bad. Right. But it is, um, if, if, God is not at the center of that. God and his kingdom is not at the center of that. It's idolatrous. Yeah. So you could put in there, um, you know, the four-bedroom house with the nice yard and white picket fence and then the lake house or the beach house or the boat or the... I mean, you just go on, two go and a half on kids yeah, and, go on, and on, yeah. go on and on and on. Those are the things that really are what I want. Hmm. Then those are the things that are really shaping the direction of your life and your life choices, the way you spend your money, the way you spend your time, mm-hmm. who you do life with, mm-hmm. all of those things are shaped by that vision. Yeah. And um, we need to also be aware that, that why we want those things is because we live in a culture that is intent on shaping that vision for us. Yeah. You didn't come up with those visions, that vision on your own. It's shaped by culture. So I tell my kids, like we watch TV and there's, a, there's an ad and the ad comes on, and, I'll, and I got this from somebody else, but he does this with his kids. But 
um, he, he, I get my kid, I ask my question, what, what vision of the good life are they painting here mm. in this, in this, in this commercial? Yeah. What are they trying to get you to want? Yeah. And it's not necessarily bad. I don't right. think advertising is inherently bad no. necessarily, but it's, we need to realize what it's doing for us. That's right. And we are exposed to marketing and advertising. You know, I've heard it said that we, we, on a daily, an average American on an average day exposed to thousands yeah. of ads. Yeah. In various forms. <laughs> in, various, in various forms. And so um, one way that my, that I found helpful in describing the, the, vision of the good life that is cast by our cultural story is the American dream. Yeah. So um, the American dream, you know, it, it was uh, a, a term coined by a guy in 1931 and he, saying that life should be better and richer and fuller for everyone mm. with opportunity for each according to his ability or achievement. So regardless of where you're born or to whom you were born or your social class, you should have an opportunity if you work hard to achieve prosperity and success. You know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, the American way. Yeah, that's right. And there's a lot of good in that. There's sure. a lot of really good things in there, but it leaves open the question of how do you fill up the meaning of happiness? What yeah. is that? Again, James K. Smith, what is the good life for what you? What is happiness for you? And what has filled up that definition by and large in our culture is health, wealth, and prosperity. Yeah. That's that's what we're after, material prosperity. Mm. So there's a long history of how we got to that point. Now, I'll save that for uh, another day. But um, here's what can happen for the Christian is that we can um, we can grab onto certain um, Bible truths like there is a God. God is triune. Uh, man is sinful. Jesus died for our sin. We go to heaven when we die, or whatever. We, we can grab onto these truth statements mm -hmm. and, and believe them truly, but we can then plug them into another cultural narrative that's propelling us towards another vision of the good life yeah. that's idolatrous. Yes, yeah, right. So you can be a Bible believing, truth believing Christian, yet really, what's what's giving shape and purpose and power to your life? is another story. Yeah. Well, that's, pr <laughs> that's, that's, pretty, that's pretty frightening to think about. <sighs> yeah, and it's happening to all of us every day. It's not, it's not like this is just something that, like you said, you don't automatically like see all the writing on the wall of, man, this is everything that's always been a lie in my life, and now I'm forever going to be done with that and move into this. It is a constant, ongoing, counter-forming process that your life would look more like Jesus's here in... 2022. Yeah. So um, a, a theologian, Joel Green, he says that clearly truth claims, however necessary, are insufficient for vital Christian faith. Mm. Since these beliefs, these statements are quite capable of functioning as the raw data in a narrative whose beginning, middle, and end is antithetical to the biblical story. Yeah. So you can, you can, you can pass a doctrine test. Sure. Um, and be a true Christian. Yeah. Yet, really, the power behind your life is something other than the kingdom of God. So, I, when I when I draw that circle for people about their vision for the good life, I draw another circle. What's God's vision for the good life? Yeah, right. What does He put in the circle? Yeah. And um, it's it's like, oh, you got me now. Right. <laughs> and are, how how closely do are these not match? The same, right. <laughs> or there's overlap often. It's your off. Yeah. Often. Um, but uh, you know, Jesus said it like this: Seek first 
the kingdom of God mm. and his righteousness, yeah. and all these things will be added to you. So what does God's kingdom look like? Yeah. Well, it looks like more than just my own personal desires. Yeah, that's right. And usually our vision of, this, of the good life is, is, zero, is, is shrunk down to just what's good for, for me. Mm. And Jesus tells us, seek first God's kingdom. The yeah. first thing you should be seeking is right. God and his kingdom. Right. It's why something <laughs> like the, a tithe is not about the money. God, God doesn't need your money. He doesn't need my 10%, your 10%, you know, our church's 10% of our income to do the things that he wants to do across time and space and history in our day here and now. But what it does say is that, Jesus, you, you, you deserve all of this. You deserve my entire life. And this is really about my heart being aligned with yours and wanting what you want, what's inside your circle, increasingly becoming what's inside of mine. That's right. And there's only so much space in the circle. <laughs> so to bring in something of God means something of the world has to go because mm-hmm. we will fill our vision of the good life with the way of God or the way of the world, with yeah. what we've always been taught versus what we're being now taught rightly and anew through the gospel. Yeah, so I give an example um, for Americans, and this, this can be uh, cause, um, you know, a reaction sometimes. Yes. I do it intentionally. But yes. um, so, you know, it's not an as hot-button issue right now in summer 22 as it has been a couple of years ago, but take the border issue. Yeah. So, <laughs> okay. like, should we go into this or not? But um, <laughs> so, you know, wherever people land on the political um, solution to that problem sure. of people coming across the border in, in Texas. Um, Christians ought to be looking at that from God's point of view. Mm. What is God caring about Yeah, in that moment? Not just what's good for America or what's good for me and mine, uh, but what is, what is God, what is, what is seeking first the kingdom of God look like sure. for that issue. Yeah. And um, often what it does for um, dyed-in-the-wool patriots is it, it causes, like, they'll, they'll start to get uncomfortable even sure. with that question. Sure. And I'm not even arguing for any kind of, like, solution, Actual let them in solution. or don't let them in. Like, right. it's just asking, how does God think about those people? Some of those people are our brothers That's exactly right. and sisters. That's right. They're Christians. We belong to the same family. We belong to the same kingdom. Sure. So at the very least, it ought to produce in us a compassion right. for our brothers and sisters who are in a desperate situation. Who are literally choosing to face all the unknowns to get away from where they are, to get into this place because of everything they've um, heard I about. I mean, right? an incredible risk they're taking. Right. So that must be pretty bad. And if nothing else, I, I need to respond with a, a posture of humble yes. compassion. Yes towards them. Now, I don't, I, don't, I don't pretend to know what is the right political solution that's in the best common interest of all. I have no idea. Sure. It's very complex. But at least for the Christian, we have to care. Right. We have to care yeah. more about God's kingdom than the kingdom of America. We just mm. have to. Otherwise, then we are giving away, we are, we are giving our hearts over to um, a, a cultural idol of nationalism. Yeah. 
So, so we, that's just one example. That is one example. And we can't get into, I mean, there are so many different cultural narratives, idols, things we've given so much of our ideology, our identity, our understanding of what the good life is and how my understanding of what the good life is should be what yours is and all the infighting and arguments that go on at political and social and so many different levels. But, but let's zero in on... Uh, a specific example, yeah. kind of continuing in this vein. For sure. So um, you mentioned one earlier, autonomy, individualism, um, self-sufficiency, you know, that we are our highest um, authority. Right. That's one. Um, there's, you know, there's there's several we could go down. There's a spiritualism, you know, I'm spiritual but not religious. Right. Uh, there's a overemphasis on um reliance upon science and mm. technology mm. to satisfy my needs and provide safety and security for me. Right. Um, I remember when, when COVID hit in that, that, that summer of 2020, there was a commercial by Pfizer that got put out that said when time, you know, it was, it was a powerful commercial mm. um, that was saying when in times of uncertainty and, and chaos and danger, we, we turn to what we trust the most, science. Mm. <laughs> and I remember I was like, we oh, my God, I wrote a little thing about that and reflection on that um, back then. But uh, so that that's one that's an, a cultural idol that we have mm-hmm. achievement. You know, we, we think that we tend to think that our worth is um, commensurate with our achievements oh, yeah. in life. So we're driven in our careers for greater and greater achievement so mm-hmm. that we could talk about that. But the one I want to talk about today is consumerism, uh, which which. Uh, I'm going to tell you the sort of the story of how we, we are the most consumeristic culture that's ever existed on planet Earth by far. Like there's no not even any comparison yeah. with the consumeristic, materialistic way of life that we um, have become very accustomed to. But we weren't always this way. And even in this country, um, it has a little story that I find fascinating and then helpful for to me to parse out how much of this consumeristic way of life am I being influenced by. Mm. So... Um, William Leach uh, was uh, a sociologist who wrote uh, about this uh, in a book in 1993 called Land of Desire, Merchant's Power and the Rise of a New American Culture. And he goes into the history of how we became a consumeristic culture. And he notes that in in 1920, the U.S. production got to be 12 times greater than in 1860, while the population over that same period had it increased only by a factor of three. Hmm. So uh, an uh, inordinate amount of goods were created, but the population remained the same. And this is coming out of the Industrial Revolution, which is coming out of the Scientific Revolution. So now humans were able to produce more things than ever before in history, like by far. And so the, the promise of industrialism was like, hey, we can produce the same amount of goods that meet our needs in half the time. Yeah. So then you can think there was talk about a 20-hour work week. You know, you can go and we can produce all we would ever need sure. and only work half the time. So there's going to be all this time for family and for leisure and all this stuff. But um, w- when we achieved the production goals, a, a choice had to be made. Yeah. And um, either we could just, yeah, work 20 hours a week and spend the rest of the time with family and leisure, mm. or uh, we could keep producing more. And um, what happened was that that there were powerful uh, leaders and influencers in government and politics and in industry that uh, wanted to propagate what they came to call uh, the gospel of consumption. 
and they wanted to train the American populace uh, to want more and more stuff. Yeah. Which obviously had a direct benefit to their pocket right. uh, because they were the industrialists behind it all. And so advertising and marketing became a medium of propagation of a, of a new gospel. Yeah. The gospel of your life can be, um, you, you can be satisfied with an ever-increasing amount of stuff. Yeah. And so let's keep this production line going. Yeah. Let's keep the goods coming off the, the shelf so that they can make the money mm. um, and enrich themselves and that people can have more and more stuff. So in this, in this paradigm, um, the, people were encouraged to get on board this escalator of desires mm. that progressively ascend to what once used to be luxuries just for the, the, the few and the rich now became um, all, all people could enjoy. Right. And again, I don't think all of this is necessarily bad, but what struck me was this idea that they were intentionally propagating what they called a gospel. In yeah. other words, you, our lives can be satisfied and full with more and more stuff. Yeah. That began 100 years ago. Yeah. And now we've become very, very, very sophisticated, mm. both in production, but especially in marketing and advertising. Yeah. Such that, I mean, with these Facebook algorithms and social media, all the, I mean, av ads are like directly designed for you as an individual yes. to cultivate a desire in you for something that you don't have yes. and probably really don't need. <laughs> uh, you, you've heard it said advertising is, a, is trying to get people to, um, buy things that they don't need to impress uh, with money that they don't have to impress people that they don't even like. Yes. You know? <laughs> and, and so um, social media today, right? I mean, just the, if I had more of this, then I can achieve that. And I have this picture that someone I don't even know tells me I now need to have in order to have the good life. Yeah. So president Herbert Hoover in 1921, he had a, he, uh, commissioned a committee on recent economic changes, and they um, envisioned this this grand scale of the expansibility of human wants and desires. They they realized the human heart is an as insatiable factory of desire, and they uh, this insatiable appetite for more goods and services. And they envisioned a boundless field. And I'm quoting from this report on this from this commission: a boundless field before us, new wants that make way for endlessly newer wants as fast as they're satisfied. Yeah. They noticed that about the, the the human condition, yeah, the condition of the human heart, yeah, and they tapped into it um, for the purpose of uh, enriching themselves. Mm. Man, so like the world. Yeah. Do not be conformed to the patterns. There, there's a power at work yeah. intentionally and really sharp and sophisticated minds behind it to get you to want stuff. Yeah. And okay. now it's mediated through smartphones, and it's right there in front of us all the time every day. Perpetuating a gospel of consumption. Of consumption. Isn't that? And so, um, you know, also, and this is something we all complain about, but uh, the, the, the designed obsolescence. Mm -hmm. And now it's mm -hmm. even faster and faster. But even, you know, 50 years ago, they were designing, uh, the engineers um, would design products. And I remember uh, my father-in-law's with, with John Deere. And even within tractors, they designed things to break. Yeah. 
they could have made you know a transmission the last 40 years and said no let's make it last 10 years because yeah. we want to sell them another one in, That's right. in 10 years so uh, this <laughs> why yeah right right uh, yeah and it gets back to this root of the love of money and desire for more stuff mm. and so uh and now that globalism and capitalism has come on the heels of the, the technology revolution and information technology and the internet and social media, that gospel has been propagated to the rest of the world. Mm. So you go to most countries in the world today, they are heavily influenced by this consumeristic gospel. Yeah. It's casting a vision for the good life that is not the same as God's vision for the good life, and we're all influenced by it. That's what I want to... That's what I want to show. Yeah. That's, so that's just one example. There are others. That's uh, terrifying, Hoffman. Thank you. <laughs> so recently in March, uh, Matt and I went to Nepal, and we we're in this Tibetan Buddhist context, and um, I went on this trek up into the village, and it was the first time in my life that I think um, I had been in a context that has not really been touched by this global, capitalistic, consumeristic gospel. Yes. Uh, other places I've lived in the world, they're urban and, you know, consumeristic mindset has already set in. Mm. But this time, and I believe it's the first time of my life I've been in a context where um, that wasn't there. Mm. And they have cultural idols, too. I mean, the Tibetan Buddhists, they're Buddhists, so there's actual physical idols. But I'm not tempted by those. Right. So there, there was about a four-day period when I was in this context where I was like, man, I feel like I'm in an idol-free, at least that appealed to my heart, right. idol-free context. There's no And it stuff. was like... It, it was so refreshing. <laughs> I don't have internet. There's no ads. There's no stuff. Yes. Just the mountains. And, and the people that I'm here with and the mission that we're a part of, I was like, I feel like I'm in a temptation-free zone. You right got now. a taste of why the Essenes went to the desert. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it, and at least the temptation <laughs> yeah. to go and just remove yourself from, like, it's all gone. The world's gone. Yeah. I'm going. And so then when I came back, I got on the plane in Kathmandu, and I flew back. Next stop was Dubai. Well, Dubai's <laughs> what, <laughs> stark what, contrast. And just the airport is like glitzy with all this fancy you know, brand new Apple product. I mean, it was like mm. I couldn't be in a more contrasting environment. And then I made it back to the States. And I was like, oh, I'm back in an environment that's appealing to my heart. It's pulling my heart after things that I don't really need. Yeah. That are taking me away probably from what God wants. Man. <laughs> so I, I'm reminded of John Tyson's book, Beautiful Resistance. Uh-huh. He, he tells a story, and in, in, it's either the introduction or the first chapter. We'll link to uh, the book in uh, the show notes below. Um, he tells a story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who is both a hero of yours and mine, uh, of the faith, of, and of so many, uh, to have lived in a culture that was as capitulated to a person and an ideology like Nazism, to to have lived in a culture in a day when even the German church had said, hail Hitler, mm-hmm. right? Like not hail mm-hmm. Jesus, but hail Hitler. And another in, cultural story. Another yeah. another cultural story, for sure, that, that has deeply shaped and impacted that country even today. Yeah. Um, he tells a story, and John Tyson does, a pastor in New York, um, tells the story of Bonhoeffer, who finally got to this point where he could no longer actively and openly preach the gospel. And so they develop this underground seminary. It's a fascinating story, and Finkenwald um, there, uh, and, and they they start this movement of training pastors underground 
uh, in much of the way the church is underground in, in places all over the world now. And, and they start raising up leaders to actually be a part of a church that is proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. And Bonhoeffer came from a very well-to-do family, very well-known in Berlin and in surrounding towns, very well-known in the academic realm all throughout Europe and, and, and in Berlin. And He's now out in the countryside, out on the coast, and he is training up leaders um, to to proclaim the gospel freely, truly as it is. And this friend comes from Berlin all the way out to Fingenwald and is like, hey, man, um, you've lived all of this life, like all of your past, all of your story, all of your accomplishments, like you're blowing all of it. You're throwing it all away. Mm. This has got to just stop. Like, it's not that big of a deal. Like, what are you out what, doing why, out here in, with this little seminary? Why yeah. are you out here doing this? Like, it's enough is enough, mm-hmm. Dietrich. It's time to come home. It's essentially the message yep. that he tells Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So Dietrich takes him down to the coast. They row across this little bay on the Polish border, and they, they start climbing this hill. And all the while, Bonhoeffer is telling him of all the things they're doing and why he's why he's training them the way that he's training them, why he's sending them out to plant churches all over Germany to continue proclaiming the gospel amidst Nazism. And they get to the top of this field, and they overlook the border there in Poland, and they see this massive Nazi airfield with planes mm-hmm. landing and taking off and droves, the hundreds, thousands of, of, of German Nazi troops marching in formation. And he's just finished telling him all that they're doing at Finkenwald. And mm-hmm. when they get to the top of this hill, they're, they're just kind of blown away by the scope of the Nazi base there on the other side of the hill. And Dietrich looks at his friend and he says, what we're doing here must be stronger than that. Mm-hmm. What we are accomplishing here, this must be stronger than that. That's right. That is the message of Romans 12. Yes. Of yes. To, to be transformed, like what we're doing as the church, what we're doing in community, what we're doing with one another has to be stronger than the formation machine of Nazism yes. in their day. Or consumerism in our, in day. our day, and that—that's the trouble that we face. Is like we can see that for Nazi Germany, we <laughs> right. can see like, oh yeah. In their day, though, the German church had had trouble seeing that. No idea, yeah, because of you know they were under this the spell of this story of German greatness. Germany had been humiliated, and Germany was going to be great again. Let's make Germany great again. Right, right. Well, <laughs> they were. Un- <laughs> They were under that spell, yeah. and they capitulated, and Bonhoeffer and others were like, no, this, this is, resist. They formed yeah. this uh, Pastors Emergency League to yeah. resist. And so we can see it more easily for other cultures. We, we have a difficult time seeing it for our own culture. And so I, I am uh, trying to apply a lot of my energy and training, even as a, a missionary, back to, like Newbegin, evaluate um, and analyze our culture today and where where is the tension that we should be feeling mm. where is the pain that we must bear yeah we can't we can't escape that tension yeah if we're to be faithful to Christ it is a cross yes and so how do we bear that so one uh, the main way probably to uh, combat and basically ferret out what are the idols in our culture is to thoroughly immerse ourselves 
in God's story. Mm. Now, this is the second main point, and the, this one and the next one I'm going to be much shorter, shorter on. But the second point is that we must be counterformed, and we, that happens by immersing ourselves in the story of God. Mm. And so God's story is the true story of the whole world. It's not about private religious faith that you keep in your private prayer closet. Right. No, it's, a, it's public truth for the whole world, and it's to influence all of life. It reveals what is real. It reveals what is our true purpose. It produces godly affections. It motivates righteous living. And it casts a vision for the good life, i.e. the kingdom of God, Mm. which calls for our love and allegiance. So we are are to allow God's story to re-narrate the world for us. So when we come to worship on a Sunday morning with the gathered church, um, that is what's happening. Yeah. Is that the, the through that corporate worship practices is re-narrating the world for us? Yeah. Even the, the the baptism and the Lord's Supper are rituals that are connected to the story of God. To say, no, you belong to this story. Yeah, that's right. This is the story, the story of the whole world that you are a part of, and now you're called to live your um, role in it. So, how can we bring every aspect of, of our lives with God's end for the world, mm. God's purpose for? Um, the world and under the reign of Jesus, and how can we join him in his mission to redeem a people from every tongue, tribe, and nation and help others to do the same? Mm. N.T. Wright um, has a helpful analogy where he talks about um, the Bible is this six-part drama, you know, creation, fall, Israel, Jesus, the church, and restoration. And he said, imagine it like a a six-part play, like a Shakespearean play. So imagine a Shakespearean play with six acts, and that um, we found um, all four, the, the first four acts and the last act in their entirety, but, and we found part of the fifth act. Mm. But the rest of the fifth act is missing. Yeah. And so this play, with this impartial play, mm. is given to a group of actors say, you, now you're, you're, you have to live out the whole play, and you have to live out this, this missing part. Yeah. And so what the, the actors must do is thoroughly immerse themselves in the storyline of the, of the play, and then they're going to have to improvise yeah. for the missing script. Mm. So he says that's what the Bible's like. Uh, the, the, the story of the early church up through the end of Acts and right. the Pauline letters, that's part Act 5A. Yeah. And then the rest of the church history yeah. is filling up the rest of that act and Jesus' return being the final act. Mm. So in our day, we have, to, we have to be like those actors in the play, thoroughly immersing ourselves in its, in its storyline and the character that it's calling us to be, and then look at our content and say, how can we improvise yeah. like jazz music f- for our day? That yeah. is what it's like living in the painful tension of the 21st century. We live in a tension that I think because of the individualistic nature of our society and specifically for us uh, in the West, we live in a day where we think we can do that on our own. And we don't even consciously choose to do it on our own. We just do it on our own. And the narrative, the story has gone, it's always been family together on a mission. Yes. And now we find ourselves here, tempted to continue going in this individualistic way, but the gospel says there's a better way to do this. Yes. So one way to think about church is a group of people, a group of actors, learning the story and then talking, how can we live out our our part in this play? Yeah. 
today in our context? Mm. How can we do the jazz work that we need to do? Um, and so we, we have to thoroughly imbibe ourselves in, or let the story imbibe itself in our hearts and minds, fill up our imaginations for what is the good life and motivate our affections and lives. And we do that together. Yeah. We do that together. And so we're, we're, we're swimming upstream and we must get used to swimming upstream in a mighty idolatrous cultural river. Mm. And we can do that best together. Maybe rowing would be a better better option. We're in a raft and you, we're rowing together upstream. upstream. Yeah, counter to the rest of the world. That's right. And so um, uh, Michael Goheen, I've mentioned him before. Uh, he's got a, so, so a list of questions that I want to kind of end with. Um, and so he's like, how can we as a people cultivate self-giving love in a world of self-interest? And how can we cultivate wisdom in a world of proliferating knowledge and information technology, mm. but without wisdom, mm. just, just information? Right. How can we cultivate justice in a world of injustice? How can we care for God's creation instead of ex- exploiting it to satisfy <laughs> our mm. own uh, materialistic desires? How can we cultivate humility in a world of arrogance and self-indulgence and self-centered behavior? And how can we cultivate patience in a world of immediate gratification? Mm. Like we're so trained to want to be gratified immediately. How can we cultivate patience? How can we cultivate passion in a world numbered by, uh, numb by overexposure to violence? And tragedy, mm. like the like the board. How do we cultivate compassion? Yeah. How do we cultivate joy in a world dominated by frantic pursuit of pleasure? And thanksgiving in a world of entitlement, and self control in a world of marital infidelity, mm. and a world saturated by sex. Yeah. How can we cultivate contentment in a world of of uncontentment? Truth in a world of uncertainty. How can we cultivate living by the moment and living in the moment, aware of God's presence in a world that says God is nowhere to be, God mm. is, God is not here. Yeah. So he he's got several more that just generosity in a world of selfishness, and there, there's a lot more. But these are the types of questions that we must be wrestling with as the people of God, and then cultivate that together. Yeah. And it, it takes a community. Authentic gospel community, if you think about this company of actors, to use N.T. Wright's continued language, this company of actors has said authentic gospel community is how we're going to carry that out beyond these four walls or any walls that the Lord gives us. We gather together as the family of God and we scatter throughout the city to be the people of God. Recently, uh, I've, I've you and I have had a lot of conversation on the the counterformation that is needed in reading Tyson and John Mark Comer and those guys coming off the heels of Dallas Willard and Eugene Peterson, them being tied with Richard Foster and all things mm-hmm. disciplines. Our community as a whole, the world around us, does not look the way the kingdom of God looks. And the, the, I love a story that, that John Mark Comer tells as they in Portland, who are incredibly individualistic and, and incredibly materialistic and spiritual but not religious and all the things that we've talked about, 
their community has a, what he calls a rule of life, not rules uh, for living, but a rule of life, something that they've decided to orient their life around, and that inside their version of community groups, <laughs> they commit to a, um, a, a financial practice that I think just would, it, it, it still blows my mind to think about how this, this flies and how this goes. But they have made a commitment to one another, and they recognize the consumeristic culture that they live in needs this type of counterformation. They have said, hey, as a community, as this group of families that are committed to, to carry out life together, to walk together, to share the burdens, the joys, the, the heartaches together, we commit uh, in, in our consumeristic culture to never spend more than $1,000 at a time on any one thing or any purchase that is, quote, needed on any purchase unless it has been brought to the community. And that community of believers then bounces the idea around to say, hey, do you really need this? Is this some, is this, like, did, the, did, the wow. washing, did, the, did the washer die and you actually need it? Or is it something you found on, you know, Amazon and you have to have it? Like, yeah. it, it just, but just that type of counterformation and their just deeply materialistic culture is cutting hard against the grain and pushing them upriver together. Yep to say we need one another to do this well. That would be hard to do. <laughs> Incredibly hard to do. I'm not advocating for that here. I'm just saying it's a really good example yep. of how do we do life together? How do we decide to be a part of a church or to leave a church or to move town or to take a different job or to do this or to change yep. you know, your, your major so that God can use you here and there. Like we right. make those decisions individually right. and the people of God have always been meant to make them Together. corporately. Yeah. Well, and he's taking seriously the, the power of consumerism. Yeah. How deeply embedded that gospel has, in our, has gotten in our hearts that, you know, doing that thousand dollars commitment is 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 acknowledging the power of that mm. cultural idol yeah. but then the power of gospel-centered community that it is strong enough this is stronger than that this like to go back to the bonhoeffer and so we must cultivate a community where this is stronger than than that and that that's that's pretty good <laughs> i like it so um yeah so just to bring it back um we we are being formed by the cultural story around us, cultural stories around us. Mm. And we need to be counterformed by God's story and that that happens best in the context of rich, authentic gospel community. And for us, that the main context for that to happen is community groups. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the Grace Auburn Leadership Podcast. To learn more about the life of our church or ways that you can give to the mission of Grace Auburn, visit our website at graceauburn.church.